Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, Robbie. How are you doing today? We're here to chat about the Rafa Nadal-Taylor Fritz match. Uh, it, some ways it feels like a long while ago, and some ways it maybe feels quite recent. I don't know how it feels for you, Robbie. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, though, John, there's a couple of matches that always stick out throughout the course of a season, um, as many matches as you do. And probably my my number one pick of the matches that I did this season, probably Alcaraz and Sinner at the US Open. I think we finished at about 2.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. But um, the Fritz-Nadal match at Wimbledon was right up there. The quality of the matchup, I thought, was a good one for Fritz. I think he's one of the few guys who's got a backhand that can live with Nadal's forehand. And I thought the surface as well was going to weigh heavily in his favor. So if I was a betting man, but I'm not... Um, you know, I, I like the chances of Fritz getting the win in that one. Uh, and I remember prepping for it and thinking, yeah, there's, there's no reason why Taylor can't go all the way. Uh, he's got the game to do it and the surface is going to suit him. Yeah, I mean, going into the match, both had probably got progressively better. I know Nadal had had a couple of wobbles in sort of rounds one and two, but was looking much better by the third and fourth round. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be there when he beat um, Botic in the fourth round. And then going into the quarterfinals as well, as you say, Taylor was on good form. Of course, they had met just a few weeks before, a couple of months before, in Indian Wells, where Taylor yeah. had won. Um, I spoke to Taylor before the match at Wimbledon. I was fortunate enough to pose a question to him at the press conference. And he said he was quite relaxed about Nadal in that, you know, Nadal's amazing. He's the legend. There's not so much pressure on me. At least that was the way he was trying to spin it. And... Yeah, and, you know, he had a great chance. I think probably I thought 50-50. But the match started. I don't know what you remember about the first three or four games, Robbie. But for me, Nadal was just on fire for the first four games. Yeah. um, I think the aura of playing on Santa Court always takes time to get used to. It doesn't matter how good you are. Um, And I think that's where Nadal... Without a doubt. In fact, hang on. Nadal lost the opening set, though. He did, yeah. But it was the first four games, Robbie, that that uh, he got a break and he goes 3-1 up. And he's just no, moving Taylor, Taylor from side to side. But there's there's a couple oh, okay. of smashes, Robbie, in that first four games that yeah. 
that Nadal does. And of course, he was already noticeably wearing this these plasters or these stickers across his belly. I remember him being asked a question about it as well in a press conference, and he said he didn't want to talk about it. And then yeah. after these first four games where I say Rafa's doing great, I think he does about three smashes in the first four games, something like that. And I think he does extenuate or extenuate his issue with the belly because then Fritz goes on a run of five games, as you highlight, and Fritz yeah, yeah. wins that first set. Yeah, no, that's that's what I remember most is, is Fritz being down in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but going on, I mean, you're asking me for detail now. I'd have to go back and watch the match when you're talking about individual smashes and stuff. You you seem to know the details of the match better than I did. <laughs> um, what was your feeling, that, though? I mean, we had that moment at the end of the first set. Do you remember the the issue between Rafa and his father um, and his yeah, father basically saying, get play. off court? Yes, asking him not to play, right? Exactly. That's right. Yeah, no, I absolutely. I absolutely remember that. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a funny one because... Despite whatever anybody else says, you ne- when you're the individual, only you know the severity of the issue. And and whilst they might be discussing it, only Nadal would have known how bad he was feeling, how much he could hang in there, how little he could hang in there. Um, so, so I was curious, as probably everybody else was, um, you're aware of the injury, but is he going to pull out? Um, and Nadal doesn't pull out very easily. So the chat in the booth, I was commentating with Nick Lester and Barry Cowan. I think we were we were doing sets on They were doing sets on and off with me. Uh-huh. And um, both those guys were saying, no chance he pulls out. Uh, and I say, well, it's not often that you get a gesticulation from his dad on the side of the court to tell him to get off the court. They said, no ways he's pulling out. So we kind of left it at that, and we were curious to see how it was going to play out. Uh, and, of course, you know, he ends up staying there. There we go. They're talking about gesticulation. Somebody's used He's that going exact, like that. I remember him word. doing that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, and I guess, yeah, I mean, that's what I remember from the opening set, Fritz coming back to win it. And I just thought that would exacerbate the problem for Nadal. Um what was your feeling about Nadal serving after that first set? Because as I say, I think the first few games he was okay. Obviously, something happened between, say, games four and eight. Loses the first set, 6-3. Um, what was your thoughts when you're watching him serve throughout the rest of the match? Did you notice a difference either in the motion or even just the speeds? Yeah, so we did a whole analysis midway through that. And um, there was no question that the... the the contact point of the serve had dropped slightly. So there's, there's no, there was clear evidence that he wasn't reaching up as much as he was in the opening set. So he was definitely ham- hampered in the serving department. Um, but again, on grass, you can probably get away with it if you're lacking a little bit of power on the grass because the surface is so so helpful with the delivery. You know, you can stay in there longer than what you probably could on any other surfaces, you're still going to get three points. The lefty is still a nightmare to return against. Um, so, we would we, again, we were just curious to see how that was going to play out. And, and for me, the biggest things when you watch these kind of matches and these kind of situations is how somebody like Fritz is going to handle a big moment. When the mm-hmm. opportunity presents itself, 
is he going to be able to grasp that opportunity? And of course, the big factor was <clears throat> the big factor was he had done it in Indian Wells. Yeah. Of course, the irony there is both guys have come into that uh, in that match with injuries as well. So it was like, oh shit, this all playing out again. <laughs> uh, you know, so that kind of that kind of talk was going on. Um, and with everything that Nadal had been through with the foot problems, I think the big talk as the second set was unfolding is, my goodness, Nadal and all his injuries, it's, it just never stops for the poor guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and is he going to see Wimbledon through or is he going to have to pull out? So, I mean, he, he was on a run of about 15, 20 matches at Grand Slam because, of course, he was chasing the Grand Slam, the calendar slam. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. Absolutely, he was uh, after winning Australian and the French. I think he was on a 20 match win streak initially at the start of yeah. the season. But, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's right. Of course, you forget so about I, that until, until you remind me of it now. Yeah, right. So, I wonder if that played a role. Um, Robbie, as a commentator, what are you thinking? Are you. You know, are you are you getting distracted like probably the viewers are uh, in the, in the crowd? I remember, and also at home, um, are you getting distracted by some of these these things, such as the father, such as the injury, or are you just as a commentator also doing point no. by point? No, no, no. You're you're worrying about everything. You're trying to get as much information, um, and, and you're wondering if you know if if the the listeners are, are going to be able to. Obviously, I'm doing radio, so they want to know every single detail. So I am trying to survey as much as I can. Of course, the co-commentator is doing a lot of work with you as well. Oh, did you? They'll be pointing to something. Did you see that? Did you see that? So it's non-stop looking for information to keep um, to keep the listeners entertained, and that's the one thing I do enjoy about doing uh, radio commentary over TV. Is you can talk about a lot of things. So because you can't have any dead time, it's yeah. You know, while the point's going on, you're obviously talking. As soon as it finishes, you continue to talk. Um, so we're always looking for every little bit of nuance to answer your question. As a commentator as well, you're in your booth. You are sort of closeted off a little bit. But can you still get a sense of the occasion? Can you still get a sense of the atmosphere as well? Um, absolutely. Um, the booths. Because, because the overhang of Santa Court at Wimbledon, with the booths being quite high up, but the sound from Santa Court reverberates because there's a big section of it that's under undercover there before you get right down close to Santa Court. And obviously, it's a lot more open when, uh, when the roof is open. So absolutely, you can get a sense of what's going on. You've got people jumping up right in front of you if, if it's a ridiculous point. So, you know, you're getting a sense... All the time, they're looking through the glass of the commentary booth at you. They're looking at your screen. So, so you're very much in the mix with the fans, no question about that. And you know, the Nadal fans, midway through that second set, are, are desperate for him first of all to stay in the contest, and obviously they want more tennis. So, they are desperate for Nadal to win that second. And he does, but it's kind yes. of. Incredible. I think Nadal gets an early break. Fritz breaks back. In fact, for a grass court tennis match with a guy who serves as well as Fritz, it's kind of astonishing how many breaks of serve there are throughout the match. And Nadal takes it. I think he just gets a sniff, Nadal, at the end of the second set. And he takes it on his first set point. So he wins it 7-5 and you're thinking, wow. But by now, he's not even looking towards his box. Yeah, and that's... And, you know, and that's where 
we as commentators were like, you know, how bad is this? Is it really as bad as he was making out? Um, so all the conjecture goes on. Yeah. Uh, it looks like he's playing, you know, fine. But again, that's these guys are cut from a different cloth, man, John. What they're able to deal with, what they're able to put themselves through. And also the hope that their presence on such a big occasion will, you know, just just get them the W. Will the, the, the size of the task for Fritz just become too much for him and not be mm -hmm. able to produce under the microscope of pressure? That certainly happened towards the tail end of that second set. Um, and that's where the best, and we're talking about the best, you know, the big three. They're, in, they're just different gravy in that department. How do you think Fritz handled the occasion? I mean, there were some moments when Nadal wasn't chasing points down. It's a quarterfinal of a Grand Slam. Fritz has never been in a semifinal of a slam, but it was there for the taking, if you like, uh, at points. You know, Nadal, yeah. we've mentioned his service speeds, I think through sets two, three, and four, were way down, 10, 20% down. He was just getting the ball in play. Do you think there's an element of, of Fritz maybe not taking his taking taking the advantage of the situation? Well, let's not forget he goes two sets to one up. Um, he does. I mean, deep deep in that fourth set, he's he's not far away, right? Um, so it's tough, man. It's tough to be critical. What I will say for Fritz is, if you have a look at his record in in big moments. He is, he is phenomenal. I think his deciding set tiebreak record, I mean, I could look it up, but it's insanely good when you compare it to other players. I mean, obviously, this one goes to a fifth set and, and he ends up losing on this occasion. But mm -hmm. he, he's not the kind of guy, if he loses, he doesn't lose because he's getting tight. It's just more often than not, it's the execution that lets him down. He's happy to go for his shots. And he's happy to live with the consequences of those. And I think that's what makes him so successful. I mean, obviously, this is one that he lost. But, I mean, if you have a look at his record overall, it's it's phenomenal. I'm going to have a quick look at it just out of... You have a look uh, at it, Robbie. I'll just yeah. talk us through the sort of second and third sets as they as they played out. Um, there was... Uh, so, obviously, Rafa sort of snap, what I call snatches it because he has just one set point and he seizes the advantage, um, pulling um, his opponent around the court. And then we go into the second set. Nadal's service motion, as we mentioned, is severely compromised by now. But aside from that, I would say Nadal was more or less 98, 99%. Um, it was just the service motion I would say was off. In fact, by now, his forehand is starting to fire. Nevertheless, Fritz breaks again in that second, in that third set. So he does take it for a two sets mm -hmm. to one lead. And it feels like a long, long way back. Have you managed to get that stat regarding... Um, yeah. The I mean, throughout his whole career, from when he first started playing, you know, challenges as well as tour events, 20 wins, five losses. Pretty deciding good. set tiebreakers under the microscope of a deciding set tiebreak, 20 and five, to a level that obviously drops to 12 and five. But still, to have a record like that is most guys are happy if they're 50 50. So to be, you know, so far in front just in, in that department is testimony. To, to how good he is generally in big moments. Uh, I think he is very clutch. All the people that I've spoken to, one of his um, junior coaches, his developmental coach, Christian Groh, who also helped Brandon Akashima a lot, okay. said ever since a young age, he just thrives in the big moments. He, will, he would walk in the juniors, he'd walk to the side of the fence and say to Chris at the start of a third set tiebreaker, he says, watch me now, coach. This is when I'm at my best. 
can't wait to beat this guy when it matters most. You know, stuff like that. Um, so I think that's why more often than not he comes through in the big situations. But, you know, on this occasion, Nadal managed rough, to get the better of him. It's Robin. As you say, these three that we just highlighted, and we know all, the, all know who the three are, they are just different gravy. Um, listen, uh, when it goes into the fourth set, though, it does feel like it's a long way back for Rafa. Um, were there various moments in the match, Robbie, that you felt even for Rafa, even Rafa can't come back from this situation, the injury, what was going on on the court with the with the family, etc.? Or did you always think that Nadal's got a great chance here or he's going to no. come back? Obviously, you can never count Nadal out, but I was just thinking on grass, the fact that Tal had beaten him at Indian Wells, had a two sets to one lead. Um, I just thought I thought that third set was massive. I thought it was so crucial. In fact, I might have even said in commentary. I think in order for an adult to win it, he has to win this third set. Yeah. You know, if the, if the abdominal strain is as bad as what we think it might be, he goes down two sets to one. That means he's still going to win another two sets to win this thing. No, it's not going to happen, boys. Um, and obviously, <laughs> I mean, the guy's a joke, isn't he? He is, he is, and there's a there's a game in the fourth set where he does. I think I think he breaks and then he then he holds with three drop shots in one game. Watching, yes. yeah, and I've got one of those on the on the screen right now. And his touch that day was, I mean, he's always got a good touch, whether it be at the net, whether it be drop shots in general, I guess. But for some reason, maybe it was just the fact he wanted to shorten points and get get the point done with. But boy, oh boy. Yeah, you know, part of part of having great touch is also recognizing when to play it, um, and I think he couples those two concepts together so well. He's got decent feel, but also the time at which he plays it makes it uh, equally effective. It's you know you can't really have one without the other, and he gets it right so often, um, and obviously on a grass court the front area of a grass court is always slightly more lush than what the back area is and it's harder. So, you know, if you get a decent, decently weighted drop shot there, that thing is going to sit nice and softly and it's not going to come up very high. And and sprinting forward on a grass court, um, somebody like Taylor, who doesn't have those small decelerating steps, it's a great play against him. And Rafa certainly used it excellently, particularly in this game. I think he was in a spot of bother as well. He may have been placing a break point. But anyway, he gets himself out of jail. He's now got the break. He manages to to hold on, basically, and win that fifth set. Um, fourth. Sorry, well, that fourth set. Thank you, Robbie. <laughs> yeah, he holds on. Um, in fact, he does get broken again. It's unbelievable how many breaks there are. He does get broken again for four all. And in fact... Sorry, I need to correct myself as well. In fact, at four all, Fritz now is just two games away from winning the match. He gets to five four. He gets to love fifteen on the Rafa serve. So yeah. now Rafa is serving to stay in the match, two sets to one, four five, and love fifteen down. Yeah, so three three points away. I mean, that's the hardest time for a for a player when you can see the checkered flag. You know, it's, it's very much in insight, but. It's one thing seeing it, and that's where the beautiful thing of the scoring system is so amazing in the sport, right? It's like you can be so close, yet you can be so far, you can't run down the clock. There's no bonus points for right. getting there quicker. Um, but 
you know, beating Nadal and putting Nadal, Federer, Djokovic away in these moments is is probably one of the toughest asks that you can have. But on a grass court, I liked Fritz's chances. Here, I'm thinking, you know, decent chance that he ends up breaking for the match here. Um, his double-handed backhand is such a good antidote to Nadal's lefty serve. We saw it in Indian Wells, and we saw a couple of the breaks here. That backhand cross court was unbelievable. Yep. Yep, we did. Uh, and on the grass court as well, perhaps it even sort of had a low bounce as well on, on occasion. Mm. So it, it worked very well for him. Nevertheless, Nadal somehow manages to gather his thoughts, hold serve from Love 15. So now it's five all. He then, uh, I think he then breaks as well, Taylor, to somehow get to a six five. And then he just goes into sort of lockdown mode, Rafa, at this point. Um, I, I saw it. Um, uh, in in Australia as well against Shapovalov when he was really sick in that fifth set. He managed to get a break and then he just sort of focused so much on his serve that it was enough to to just get through it. And I saw some parallels between those two matches. I don't know if you remember the match with Shapovalov in Australia with yeah. Nadal. Um, yeah. and, and, but then I still felt that in the fifth set for both Taylor and Dennis in, in Melbourne that there was a chance there and that maybe... They did open the door a little bit. And of course, if you open the door for Rafa, he's going to take it. Yeah, Shepo and Oz just missed, right? I mean, yeah. he just made the most basic of unforced errors. Nadal just putting balls back in the court and and him missing. Um, I just remember longer rallies there in, in, in Australia. Um, that fifth set, I think, springs to mind, definitively. <laughs> as far as, as Fritz making big misses is concerned, are concerned, um, you know, well, the fifth set ends up going all the way, doesn't it? It does, uh, yeah. So, I mean, you've got what you have in the fifth set with Rafa and, and Taylor is I think they do both break. I think Rafa, uh, for the first time in pretty much since the beginning of the match, when Rafa got that 3-1 lead in the first set, and then from that moment onwards, where wherever the scoreboard was, it was always pretty much Taylor in front until three oh, all okay. fifth set. And Nadal breaks, and you're thinking, wow, he's probably going to do it now. He's a breakup, 4-3, just got a hold serve a couple of times, and he's been holding pretty well um, at various points in the match, despite his ailing situation. So now it's time for Taylor to come fighting back. There were so many twists and turns, actually. It's kind of difficult to keep up, Robbie. And, um, and now you're thinking, well, Rafa's going to do it, but now it's Taylor to show time to show some mental fortitude. And maybe I'm doing him a disservice in that that he did show some mental fortitude at times that day as well. Yeah. I mean, I think when you're going toe-to-toe like that, I also also think it really heightens your senses when you get broken. Um, you know, we so often speak about the boomerang break when, when someone breaks half and they get broken right after doing that. Um the, the person breaking can so often have a slight letdown. The person who's just been broken has that desperation to get back on, on level terms. And I think that's exactly what we saw from Taylor. I think he was almost, I think he was almost annoyed that he, he was the one that'd been broken third, first in the fifth. Um, and I think he, he breaks right back the very next game yeah. of memory serves. Yeah. Um, and I do remember the crowd going absolutely ballistic when he broke back to get back on level pegging in the fifth. And uh, I remember Barry Cowan saying to me, um, 
this one's going to be decided now by a fifth set breaker, no question about it. Um, and we had that discussion. And I said, I remember saying to him, I tell you what, given what we've seen here, uh, I'm definitely not putting another breaker serve uh, off of the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Barry ended up being right because it did go to a fifth set breaker. Um, uh, but Nadal was un- under a bit of pressure now because having having had the advantage with the break of serve, he then seeds it by getting Glocum back. He's also got another moment in the match where he's serving to stay in the match again because he's always behind on the serve, uh, if you like. In fact, he has to do it, I think, two or two more occasions uh, because yep. uh, he has to do it as well at 5-6. But he does throw at 5-6 to love, showing some of the, the feathery touch that we mentioned. And so we're into a tiebreaker. What are your memories of the tiebreaker, Robbie? Um, I just remember, first and foremost, the atmosphere was unbelievable. Um, that set the stage. I was, at this stage, my overriding opinion was still that Fritz was going to get it done. I remember belting out his, his tiebreak records and deciding set tiebreaks. And I just thought, having come from a breakdown in the fifth, he was the one who would feel like he's he's got a bit more of the momentum going into the tiebreak. Um, uh, it's almost a feeling of you're down and out, you should have lost, but now you've come back and it's almost like you've got a second lease of life. And I just thought, given how good he is, given that he'd beaten him in Indian Wells, the belief would be enough that given he's come this far, Nadal was injured, that he was gonna he was gonna prevail. That was my overriding thought at the start of the breakup. But Rafa takes a five-love lead, and you're thinking, well, that's that. You, you, you won't see Rafa seeding that kind of advantage. But mm-hmm. Taylor then gets it back to 5-3. So you're mm-hmm. thinking, well, hang on a second. He's got one of these mini breaks back. Who knows where we might end up? And I don't know if you remember this point here with, with Taylor on the floor. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a, a, a full of drama. But but Rafa always keeps the lead in this tiebreaker. Um and there are some more incredible points. By now, Rafa's serve, believe it or not, is not back to normal, but it is, he sort of cranks it up a bit in that fifth set to give him a chance, let's say, because as I say, for the previous sort of three or four sets, he was just putting the ball in play at times. Um, but Fritz here, of course, on the ground, and basically everyone in the stadium was on their feet, and of course Rafa too, but Fritz was there lying on the ground. I don't know if you remember this point or the, these stages of the tiebreak. No, uh, I, I do remember him on the on the floor over there. Um, I think he just, I think it was a, a backhand drop shot that that Rafa had hit, if memory serves. Um, but again, talk about the front area of the court. Um, why it's so good? Why drop shots are so effective there? It's so difficult to slow down uh, when you get to that area of the court. And if you don't have unbelievable footwork, if you're not Federer-like or Djokovic-like, there's a good chance that you're going to end up where Fritz ended up right there. Um, and, you know, after after he went down five love, I remember thinking, no, no chance yet. He's not going to be able to, to come back. Then 5-3, something happened at the 5-3 point, though. Um, something happened at the 5-3 point. For Fritz to get back on serve. Was this the 5-3 point, John? This was 6-3, I think, to go to 7-3, this was. But our 5-3 was obviously sort of one point before. I mean, Fritz could have got to to obviously back on serve to make it 5-4, but he wasn't able to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
um, you know, paper thin margins. If he gets that, the fact that Nadal keeps the buffer, I think, ends up being the defining factor in in the in the fifth set tiebreaker. It just keeps his keeps his nose out in front, grows his belief, and I think, you know, slowly just sucks the life out of Fritz. Right, and Rafa manages to hold on. I think it's 10-5, I think something like that. And the scenes at the end were uh, insane. Looking back on the match, uh, a couple of sort of reflective things. Did Nadal win it or did Taylor lose it? Or was it a bit of both? Yeah, I think it's I think it's always a little bit of both, right? But I think you've got to give Nadal 90% of the credit. I think... There's, there's places there where, where Fritz thinks I could have done this or I could have done that slightly better, but I don't think it's from I don't think it's from lacking mental fortitude as we discussed earlier. I think I think he's got it between the ears better than most. And generally nine and a half times out of ten, what lets him down is execution. So, you know, I've got to give Nadal most of the props. If I was Fritz's coach. Uh, it wouldn't be foot up the backside. It would be arm around the shoulder at the end of that one. Fair enough. And what about Nadal? Obviously, the next day, of course, he's gone through. There was some conjecture about maybe he should have pulled out and let Taylor go through. What did you feel about that? Yeah. Uh, no, I've been around the sport, I'm sure you have, for too long to know that that doesn't, that doesn't cut it. Um, you always get that talk on social media. But, you know, your opportunity is on that day. Um, you give it all you got. And who knows how you wake up the next day. You might be uh, very sore that you have to pull out like he did against Kyrgios. Or, um, you know, you've got 48 hours to recover. Perhaps a miracle happens and you feel great. I mean, it certainly happened to Djokovic at the Australian Open when he did his, uh, his stomach problem. So, yeah, you know, there was talk about that, but um, no, you can never hold that against Nadal for pulling out uh, after he'd won, even though he's in pain. You never let somebody win. Never. No. And Taylor certainly didn't feel that way. He, he you know, he accepted defeat as, as well as anyone else did. Um, yeah. Of course, we have the next day after this. I remember on TV just watching some images of Rafa practicing his serve, and I was thinking, oh boy, this is, this is worse than it was yesterday, albeit it was just practice. He then calls a press conference, I think, for about 7 o'clock p.m. local time. And we all know what this is. You don't randomly call a press conference in the middle of a slam like that. Um, and he does pull out. And Rafa was devastated for obvious reasons. But I remember one phrase he used in that press conference. He said, I'm particularly upset because the ball was starting to feel good in my hand. And that's a, it's a funny thing that he's obviously talking about the moment that he's about to serve and just feeling confident. And I think his confidence was growing through that tournament. We'll never know how he would have got on against Kyrgios and even less so, of course, against Djokovic had he made it that far. But there was a feeling of momentum building at that tournament. Did, did you share that, Robbie? Or, or did you still think there's a long way to go for yeah, him? Because I remember he, he struggled in his early rounds. You know, yep. he, I mean, of course, Sarundalo, Barankas. Um, and then he played well against Sonigo. The match against Botic was clean. Given yeah. how good and how dangerous Venezuelan uh, can be on that surface, so um, you can see the progression. You know, he didn't play. A, I don't think he played a warm-up tournament coming into Wimbledon. I think no, it was Roland Garros straight into Wimby. Um, so the fact that he actually struggled against Serendula and Barankas, uh, you know, had to play an extra couple of sets there. Well, that was almost like you know the additional preparation that he needed 
as long as you can survive those matches. Yeah. Which you did. And then I think the straight sets against Sonigo and, and uh, the straight sets against Venezential teed him up perfectly for, you know, the second week of the tournament. But obviously, you know, it's been a tough year for him as far as his body is concerned and his, his body's let, let him down. There. I mean, obviously, all of us wanted to see that blockbuster between him and Kyrgios. Kyrgios is not shy to get in his grill. So Kyrgios made a name for himself back in the day when he beat Nadal. Yeah. So um, it's such a pity that that match never came to be. Yeah, it is. Do you think now looking back, especially looking at the second half of Rafa's season from pretty much from this match onwards, do you yeah. think that maybe in hindsight he should have pulled out and he might have been better prepared for the second half of the season? Yeah, I think you touched on an important point, the fact that he's chasing the Grand Slam and the true sense of that phrase. Um, that's probably kept him out there. Had he not won Australia and he just won the French, I think it's a very valid point that you make um, that he might not stick it out, that he might he might pull out a, a lot earlier, rest it, and then uh, rest himself for, for the second half of the year. But the US Open hasn't been particularly good for him either. So, you know, those hard courts, his body's taken such a pounding normally. By the time you know Wimbledon comes round, that the second half of the year historically has never been great for him. Um, and I guess the fact that he's chasing the Grand Slam, he's thinking, "Well, I'm going to ride this one as long as I can." Yeah, Robbie, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, it was an epic match, as you mentioned. There were other epic matches this year, and we will be covering those as well. And just trying to get the people that were there in those moments and. I was there, albeit as a, as a you know in in the crowd, and you were there in the commentary booth. And it's been an incredible year for various different reasons. And I think Alcaraz, Noah, Djokovic, and Nadal can rightfully say that it's been their year for one reason or another. But um, throughout this first seven months, and and up until this particular match, I would say it was certainly Nadal's year, right? Well, absolutely, John. And I mean, your recollection of what went on as well is bloody brilliant too. You know the detail that you have. So that's, I think uh, I've got, got a separate question for you, Robbie, actually, and this is just mm -hmm. aside from that. Do you find as a commentator that you're kind of so in the moment, if you like, and you're so focused on your job as well as, as well as what's going on around you that actually maybe for you, like sometimes you hear players and uh, in other sports and, and sometimes we remember things and they're like, Oh, I don't even remember that happening. And you're kind of, you're kind of in it so much that it's, even something that happened as you're commentating, because you've, as you said, as a radio commentator, you've got to keep talking. And does that therefore make it a bit difficult to, to remember everything in a way? Absolutely. And especially when, especially a match of that duration. Um, you know, even, even the Alcaraz cinema match from the US Open, if you ask me, I, I don't remember too much. I'll have to go back and watch that match in its entirety to remember and get snippets of information again of, of what happened, what, what we were talking about to get a real sense. All I remember that or all, all I remember about that contest was that it was like PlayStation tennis, you know, both guys hitting it so early, so hard, and being so full of energy, the crowd being thin by the time it I think it was only about four thousand people left in off the ash by the time by the time it finished. But but you're absolutely right. In my playing days, John, I could remember everything in detail. Mm -hmm. In commentary I have my fits and starts. I have to go back and watch highlights sometimes just to remind me of things. Um, you know, I remember the 24-shot rally at the Australian Open final with, 
with Nadal and Federer when I was commentating that in 2019. But that's literally like one of the only things and the challenge on match point because I had mm -hmm. prepped what I was going to say if either player had won. Okay. And, and as I start the preparation, because I've seen the ball is in, Nadal challenges and I have to stop. Ah, uh, that one, yeah. My words were for Raj. So it's like those are the only two things I remember in the entirety of that fifth set in, in that final. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, when you have discussions, you sit with other commentators and you talk about the match. That's when, like, everything starts flooding back. And, uh, you know, similarly with you, it's nice to relive those moments. And you do a great job of it. So thank you. Thanks for having thank me Thank you, Robbie. Uh, your words mean a lot. And listen, uh, enjoy the off-season. It's time for us now to sort of de-tennis a little bit. Uh, this episode will be going out uh, in December, um, probably just before Christmas, for people just to sort of uh, look back on the year. And, and it's been a great year. And it's been a great show, Robbie. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, JS. Stay fit and well, man. Will do. Bye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.